It is so good to be with you tonight and to talk about uh, this great book of Jonah. And we'll direct our attention to that book here in just a few moments. But uh, just want to say how grateful I am to uh, once again be worshiping and, and uh, sharing this time with you tonight. We at Redeemer Community Church are so encouraged by the ministry that Colonial has had in our lives. And God continues to bless there. And as we continue to preach the word, he continues to bring those who, who desire to hear that. And, and the ministry is growing. And, and we covet uh, your prayers for that as we continue to plant that church in Fuquay Verena. Although it's been two years, so I don't know when the uh, timetable runs out on planting a church when it becomes one that's actually planted. So uh, we'll see how that goes. To begin tonight, I actually want to direct your attention to the New Testament to start. So be turning with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let me commend you. I, I, it's uh, understanding the Old Testament, particularly the minor prophets, in a way that's very profitable for the church, has in some ways gone the, the way of the dark side. As we proclaim the, the Word of God, we, we tend to focus on the New Testament, and that has a, a lot of merit to it, because it's there that we, we learn very explicitly the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and begin to understand Him in, in a better way. However, as, uh, as one who teaches and preaches the Old Testament for a living, there are a few verses here in 1 Corinthians 15 that I would like to use just kind of as a jump-off place for our discussion tonight of the book of Jonah. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says this in verse 1. It says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and which also you stand. By which also you are saved if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So Paul, writing to, to Corinth, makes this point that he wants to explicate or clarify the gospel for them. And he begins that in verse 3. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, and there's this very important phrase, according to to the scriptures and that he was buried verse 4 and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures in many ways as i think about and approach the old testament those verses give me the the directive i need to now take those verses and begin to scour the old testament and read it in such a way that it proclaims my lord and savior jesus christ I think sometimes in the church, we're intimidated, as I was for many years of my life, by the Old Testament. Sure, we would go back to the Old Testament, we would read the stories, we would pull out perhaps moral imperatives that we needed from the stories that are included there. However, when the, the New Testament church wanted to proclaim the actual gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ, they turned to the Old Testament or what would have been their Bible. I really intend to talk about the Old Testament as that which is the gospel according to the prophets. The New Testament in many ways has been termed the gospel according to the apostles. Well, the Old Testament is the gospel of Jesus Christ according to the prophets. You see, the Old Testament was written by a series of prophets, beginning with Moses, continuing on down through the, the whole Old Testament. And as we come to the minor prophets, which you're directing your attention to this fall, you see this, this overflow, this resounding sound among these prophets of truth about grace and compassion 
and God's love for his people and, and how he desires to save them. I say that because I think in many ways we, we think of the Old Testament, or this was the kind of the, the attitude I was raised with in the Old Testament. Back in Mobile, Alabama, which is where I'm from, I'm from L.A., Lower Alabama, and back in Mobile, Alabama, there's this, this place called Mobile Bay. It's very important if you go back and read some about early American history. Lots of stuff going on there, Fort Condi and other places. What's interesting about Mobile Bay is this. There are basically two ways to pass from the west side of Mobile Bay to the east side or vice versa. One of them is an ancient kind of old causeway that was built way early in the 1900s. And it was basically uh, a mound. There, there was, of course, a tunnel underneath because there was lots of shipping lanes uh, coming through Mobile Bay. But there was this causeway that was built up. And if you wanted to go from Mobile County to Baldwin County, you would have to drive across that causeway of kind of built-up earth. Well, early or late in the 1900s, maybe 1970s or so forth, I-10, Interstate 10, which passes from California all the way to the end of Florida, passes right through Mobile, and it must cross Mobile Bay. So you know what they did? They built this nice, huge, what we call the expressway. It's an extension of I-10, and it, and it crosses that bay, and you know, it's just, just beautiful, this four-laned highway on, on both sides. And, and so, it, I mean, it's just immaculate if you want to, as far as roads are concerned. So it's just this wonderful passage over the thing. Well, you know what they did? They left the other one there. And so every now and then, as you're riding across this immense expressway, you'll actually look over and see these poor souls who are still riding across this old causeway. Two lanes, not very, it's hard to get to, it's hard to make your way in there. In many ways, that's kind of the way the Old Testament seemed in my mind as I was growing up. Why would I want to revert back and begin walking and riding on that road when I have just this huge expressway that I call the New Testament, where I'm going to have no problem understanding the things of Christ, where I'm going to have no problem understanding the gospel of salvation. Well, I think that's a poor way of looking at the Old Testament. Because what it does is it places what we understand as the New Testament, Matthew through Revelation, over against this other highway, which is the Old Testament. Let me give you a better way to understand how these two testaments, old and new, kind of relate together. Now, I'm not a good golfer, uh, as some people actually in this room can probably attest, but I enjoy the sport, and I think it's entertaining, and I enjoy actually watching it on TV at times. Now, I don't enjoy watching the British Open, but at times, every, so, every few years, they actually have it at one of the most historic golf courses in the world, and that would be St. Andrews. Well, St. Andrews is this old, antiquated golf course, old buildings all around. It is literally well over 100 years old. In many ways, it's understood as the birthplace of the modern golf game. Well, St. Andrews, you know, they still play tournaments today, and the course has literally very, very, not changed very much at all. And so what they played on 150 years ago is what Tiger Woods and Phil and all these other guys are actually playing on today. In some sense, that's what I want us to understand when we think about the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament is in some ways this this older document, yes. It has this, this older traditions, this older story about Israel and the patriarchs spanning thousands of years ago all the way back to creation. 
And what happens when the New Testament comes along? The New Testament doesn't build a brand new immaculate golf course. What the New Testament does is make slight adjustments to the existing golf course. Because you know what they've done at St. Andrews? They've not changed the layout. The holes are in the, still in the same position, but they've tweaked it just a hair at different places. Let's move this tee back. You know, back when they were playing 150 years ago, they didn't have the technology that they have in the, in the drivers and in the balls that they have these days. And so they've slightly tweaked it, but in essence, it's extremely, and it is the exact same course that they've always played on. I want you to think about the Old Testament this way. When the New Testament writers and the early church and the New Testament church were understanding and comprehending what was going on with this man that we call Jesus Christ, and for them to understand him in a theological way, what they did is they played golf on that old course that we now call the Old Testament. It's been said, uh, in fact, my brother uses this line a lot when he, my brother's actually a professor as well. He says, now be careful if you proclaim and, and you want to bill yourself as a New Testament church. Because if you're a New Testament church, you need to rip out your New Testament, throw it away, and just solely study the Old Testament. Because that's what the New Testament church was doing. When they read the gospel according to the prophets namely the Old Testament, they were seeing and understanding and interpreting and comprehending this whole event that surrounded Jesus Christ. Which means for us, when we approach the Old Testament, what we find, and it should not surprise us at all, when we come to the Old Testament, we will find very clearly on the pages of that scripture a hope. And a hope that centers not upon a religion, Not upon a particular people group, but a particular individual who is none other than Messiah, who will be priest and king and none other than son of God. And all of that, all of that which the New Testament clearly articulates for us, finds its bearings and its comprehension in what we understand as the Old Testament. And so when we come this evening to, to to the gospel according to Jonah... It should not surprise us that the gospel that book is preaching is the same that Paul is preaching in the book of Romans. Now that, in my mind, that was, once I got over that leap and began to understand that's what was going on in the Bible, that revolutionized my understanding of the Old Testament. Because like you and and like many in the church, perhaps, we get bogged down in, well, number one, I'm not Jewish. And number two, I can never keep this law that this Old Testament keeps preaching to me. Well, the good news of the gospel according to the Old Testament is that that's not the point. The point is faith, faith in God's promises, faith that he and he alone is a God who can deliver. And that is the gospel, ladies and gentlemen, that we find all throughout the pages of the Old Testament, particularly the book of Jonah. So when we open up the book of Jonah, we will find the gospel about salvation by grace through faith, a gospel according to the scriptures, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. So let's go there and look, because I I think it's important for us to, to face Jonah with that perspective, because what that allows us to do is to comprehend this this interesting book that we, we all know the story. We, we all know the story of Jonah, but to understand it within this grand narrative of Scripture. 
this grand narrative that portrays God acting in this world, that tells the truth about how God, the the creator God, the one who made all things and therefore rules over all things, actually interacts and intervenes in the lives of those who are his people. And as Jonah finds out, he does that often in a very surprising way. Something that he would have never thought God was going to do. He does. It's a very interesting story. So with, with that as our backdrop, understanding kind of the context of it, let's just kind of jump in and, and I will point out some of the things that I think are the most important things throughout the book of Jonah. I would like to just kind of give you uh, three basic principles as we're walking through this book of what I think are the, the theological ramifications of the book of Jonah. It kind of shocked me one day when I, when I woke up and I, I really discerned, not for the first time or not for the last time, but when I really began to understand that the Old Testament is a book about theology, is a theological book. Yes, it portrays history. It's very important that we study that history and know that history. But the essence of this Old Testament that we study is to teach us something about God, about his work, about the way he brings salvation, the way that he blesses. And Jonah makes a grand contribution to our understanding of that. Well, what is this book purpose? What what is this all about? As Dr. Burgraff says, the book reveals that God desired the salvation of Gentiles and extended his grace toward them. Although God had established a covenant relationship with Israel alone, he did not abandon the rest of mankind. Jonah's message was directed to the powerful nation of Assyria with its capital city at Nineveh. Those first two sentences nail exactly what this book is about. God brings salvation to, of all people, the Gentiles. Let's see how he does that. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But what did Jonah do? Well, we know this story well. He rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Very familiar story. He, he gets up and he goes the opposite way when he hears the Lord speak. This is what I want you to do. I want you to go to the Ninevites. And Nineveh being the capital of Assyria. Now, what is so significant about Assyria? Well, you have to remember that Jonah is proclaiming his prophetic message. He is a prophet of what's called the Northern Kingdom. And I know you have developed this over your time, over these first four or five books in the Minor Prophets. The Northern Kingdom, once Israel split after the time of Solomon, it was broken up into the ten tribes, two tribes. The ten tribes of the north continued to worship Yahweh, and God continued to send prophets of God to them to proclaim his message, and Jonah happened to be one of them. Well, the world power, according to Scripture, the one who would ultimately bring down that northern kingdom in 722 B.C. was none other than Assyria. And so when we read this book and understand what the ramifications of what God is talking about here, it makes a lot of sense. Kind of the arch enemy of Israel at this time would have been the Assyrians. And so Jonah is given this message to go cry against this city because they are wicked. But for some reason he doesn't like that. 
And we don't understand why until we get to chapter 4 of the book. But it, it's very interesting because he says, Go proclaim against your enemies that I am going to destroy them. That should have been something that he embraced wholeheartedly, right? Or it seems like that would have been a possibility. Why didn't he just, absolutely, God, let me at them. Because we don't like them anyway. But he says in verse 4 that the Lord, once he was on the ship, the Lord himself hurled a great wind on the sea. There was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break up. So the sailors became afraid and every man cried to his God and they threw a cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below the hold of the ship, lain down, fallen sound asleep. That's unfathomable. It's amazing. So the captain approached him and said, how is it that you are sleeping? Get up. Call on your God, because the more we call on, call on, perhaps there will be one who will actually save us. All right? They're already calling on their gods. Why don't you get up and call on your God, and maybe one will hear us. Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. So the, the story begins to, to portray this as, in some sense, a, not a competition, but it's portraying, okay, what is going to happen? What if Jonah now stands up and begins to call upon his God? What's going to happen? It begins to place the gods of the nations over against the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh. It puts them over against each other. And so it becomes this, well, what is going to happen? Is God going to come to the rescue or is he going to allow them to perish? Verse 7, each man said to his mate, come, let us cast lots so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah without any explanation doesn't mean that we need to begin casting lots to see who the bad apple is in the group. It just says that's what happened and it fell upon, upon Jonah. All of this, you can see in the background, is going to be guided by the hand of, of the Lord. All of this is being guided by what God is doing. He's the one who hurled the, 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 the great wind on the sea. He is the one guiding the lives of both these sailors and of Jonah himself. He is the one who's bringing this around to serve his purposes. Verse 8, then they said to him, tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? From what people are you? So he says, I'm a Hebrew, and it's very important that we read this next part. He says, I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. That becomes very important because later on, that's exactly what's going to happen with these sailors. They're going to fear the Lord as well. So here we have this rebellious, hesitant prophet running from God, proclaiming to these sailors, you know what? I fear Yahweh. I fear the Lord God of heaven, the one who made all things and therefore has the prerogative to hurl a wind on the sea if he sees fit. Verse 10, the men became extremely frightened. They said to him, how could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. They understood what his mission was. He was running as far away as he could from this God, this God who is creator, the one who had him in the palm of his hand. He's learning hard way what David says in in Psalm 139, that he can run wherever he goes, there's God, right? No matter how far he runs, there's God. He's always there. Verse 11, so they said to him, What should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. He said to them, Pick me up, throw me into the sea, 
And the sea will become calm for you, for I know that account on me, this great storm has come upon you. Verse 13. However, the men rowed desperately. So they saw, throw me over and it's going to stop. And, and so they just rowed more desperately. No, Jonah, we're not going to do that. We're just going to try to, to attack this on our own. So the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. And what did they do? Uh, I find this a, an ironic twist, very interesting twist. Verse 14, so they called on their gods? No, they called on the Lord. They called on Jonah's God. They called on the God that he talked about in verse 9. The one he said, I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven. He says in verse 14, or they said, they called on that God. They called on Jonah's God, the Lord. And what did they say? He said, we earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life and do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. These pagan sailors who just a few verses before were calling out to their their idols, asking their gods to come to their rescue, get it. Here they're praying to none other than the God of heaven, the one who is the God of Israel, the one who is Jonah's God, and they're crying out, and they understand that he and he alone does as he pleases. So verse 15, they pick up Jonah, they throw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Which, according to verse 16, calls them to respond this way. The men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Did you get it? Do you see that? Earlier he said, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. And here they are, fearing the Lord, offering a sacrifice and making vows to none other than the same God. Well, as the readers... We should find great encouragement in what happens in chapter 1 of the book of Jonah. Because here's Jonah jumping on this ship for, with these sailors who are headed to Tarshish, headed to the opposite end of the known world. And here they are. This was what God used to bring about their salvation. So despite Jonah, despite his, his ignorance, or despite his disobedience, And his failure to obey the word of the Lord, God uses that as an opportunity to reveal his grace, to reveal his compassion, and on a grander scheme, to reveal once again his plans for those who are not of Israel. He saves these pagan sailors and shows in the meantime that despite Israel and despite Jonah, who in many ways becomes representative of that whole nation, despite their lack of concern for their nations, God reveals very clearly that he desires for all men to be saved, even those who are Gentiles. They become God-fearers. And we should find great encouragement in that. Because here's an overarching principle that we, that we very seldom get when we kind of just do a cursory read of the Old Testament. And it's this fact that from the very beginning, God has this desire, this compassion, not just only for a particular group, namely Israel. 
Yes, he makes certain promises to them. Yes, he has a certain agenda and his plan for them. But at the same time, we can never get away from the fact in the Old Testament that God has a plan to bless abundantly those who are not of the people of Israel. I mean, just begin to think through what happens in the Old Testament. Genesis 14, we encounter this guy who's a priest. And he's a king. And, he, and he's not of the line of Abraham. He is, he is this Gentile. He is this one who fears and, and obeys and serves God Most High. He serves the same God as Abraham. And we continue walking through the story and we find that, lo and behold, Hagar, this one who is an Egyptian, God has special compassion upon her. And he comes and rescues her in her darkest time. Or we just go a few more books later into the book of Joshua and we, and we see Rahab, this, this pagan Gentile harlot, come to a proper understanding that the God that the Israelites are serving is the God, the one who created everything, and so therefore she confesses faith in him. Think of Ruth from Moab. All of these people take their place in this group of individuals who are not of the people of Israel in the Old Testament, and yet they receive salvation from the Lord, just like we find here in the book of Jonah. I mean, that should be an encouragement to us because we don't have to wait until we get to the New Testament to find that God has a particular plan and he desires to to bring in from all the nations those who would believe and confess and trust in him. You see, salvation in the Old Testament, ladies and gentlemen, is exactly the same as in the New Testament. It is by grace of God through faith in God. So the sailors there in the book of Jonah find that out in a stark reality here. God uses the disobedience of Jonah running to the other end of the world to save these individuals. That should be an encouragement to us. It should be an encouragement to to anyone who reads this book. But it's also an affront to what Jonah is doing by fleeing from this. Here is a prophet of the Lord whom we find prophesying in other places in the Old Testament who seems not to get it, or at least seems not to acknowledge it. Let's go to chapter, verse 17 of chapter 1. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Don Sandberg and I had talked about having him come up and crawl into the fetal position up here on stage to show you that perhaps a a grown man could actually fit inside of the fish, but... He backed out at the last minute, so I apologize for that. But uh, so the Lord, again, that's, you know, just in jest. But the point is that this is not something that we just kind of uh, read over and we try to find an explanation. I think what Dr. Burgraff says under problems of the book is very good warning to us when it says, you know, how can we imagine a, a man living for three days and three nights in the belly of a fish and And so we go looking for other opportunities where that has actually happened to people, where someone's been in a fish and and been able to live through it. However, in many, many times, you know, that might encourage us to, or it might cause us to perhaps believe that this is possible, but I think it defeats the whole purpose, which is that, that God is superintending all of this. This is not the normal course of a man's life to fall in the, in the sea, get swallowed by a fish, and three days later get spit out. 
In fact, the book doesn't portray it that way at all. Because notice that it's verse 17. The Lord appointed a great fish. And then when we get to verse 10, it's the Lord again commanding the fish. So all of this, God has Jonah in his hands. And and though he's putting him through the trial of the century here, it's God who's doing all of it. Once again, we see God's sovereign hand guiding the lives of those who are part of the story. In this case, Jonah. So this is a miraculous event. And so don't, uh, don't degrade it by trying to, to prove it. I think that would be the point I would make. Chapter 2, verse 1. Jonah prayed to the Lord from the stomach of the fish. And, and when someone prays or when a narrative, when a story breaks off into a poem, our, our antennae should just kind of perk up a little bit. Because when you have, when you're telling a story in the Old Testament and all of a sudden there's poetry that shows up, that means something real big is about to happen. Or the author is interpreting what's going on for us. Or, or someone's going to give us the, the proper perspective for understanding exactly what's going on in this story. And that's exactly what happens here with Jonah. He prays to the Lord and he says, I called out of my distress to the Lord and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of of Sheol, you heard my voice, for you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountain. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. And then we have verse 8, which is a very interesting verse, and it's kind of hard to understand. But I think it makes an important point here in the book, verses 8 and 9. Help us to understand what's going on in this story. Verse 8, those who regard vain idols, useless idols, something like It's a very hard phrase to interpret, uh, but it has something to do with idols and the fact that they are vanity of vanities. It uses the same word as Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities. Those who regard those things forsake their faithfulness. Or other interpretations or other translations you might have in front of you may say something like forsake the mercy that could have been theirs. But verse 9 he says, but as for me or and as for me, I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving that which I have vowed I will pay. And then he says, very interesting that salvation is from the Lord. It seems as if Jonah is is saying something much grander than he actually seems to get. Because here he says salvation is absolutely of the Lord. And in fact, those who would, who would flee to vain idols, worthless gods, that a.k.a. like the sailors that we have just been talking about in chapter 1, when they flee to their gods, they forsake what could be theirs in the sense of the salvation that comes from the Lord. Well, we find that in the sailors, they actually forsake their idols and fear the Lord. But, you know, here we have Jonah saying something that's, that's very articulate about the way that God works. Because those, he says, they could re- those who regard those vain idols, those who serve other gods, are, are forsaking what they could find in the true God. Namely, they can find loyal love and commitment and mercy and compassion. And in fact, he says, I'm kind of an example of that. 
Because I cried to the Lord from the deep, and he heard my voice, and he saved me. And the overarching principle here in verse 9 is extremely important for understanding the book. Because he proclaims, and it lives out in the narrative of the book, that salvation is only from the Lord, the God of Israel. Salvation is from him. And what's significant about that is that the book of Jonah proclaims that salvation as not just being strictly to his people Israel, but also to the Gentiles. Because what's chapter 3 about? Because when you get to chapter 3, and we will kind of speed up here, we probably won't read the whole chapter, but when you get to chapter 3, what we find is, is God calls once again to Jonah and says, now, now I really want you to go do that, and he does it. And he goes to Nineveh and he proclaims just a, a very simple sermon. Yet 40 days, verse 4, and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's all we get. There's his sermon. There's his sermon. I, I'm sure there was other things that he said. or It seemed like he was there for three days walking about the city trying to convince them of this fact. And we don't see that as part of the story. He just very clearly, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. His sermon, notice that his sermon does not say, unless you repent, unless you turn from your wicked ways, unless you do this, unless you do that, then Nineveh will be overthrown. No, he just simply says, yet 40 days, Nineveh is going to be overthrown. You see, it seems that Jonah had made up his mind that what was going to happen here is that he was going to proclaim this 40 days later, boom, Nineveh is flattened, or at least attacked and done away with but it doesn't happen that way does it because here we see another example look at pick it up in verse 5 so how do they respond well the people of Nineveh what do they do and this is huge they believed in God they had faith in God and so they responded correctly that faith produced a fasting a putting on of sackcloth Every one of them, from the least of them to the greatest, believed and therefore fasted and put on sackcloth. Faith in the Old Testament is not on every page. It's not all the way through. You don't hear faith, 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 but you do hear it. Beginning in Genesis 15, 6, where it says that Abraham believed God and what happened? God did what? He credited it to him as righteousness. You see, faith is there in the Old Testament. People are believing in the Lord. People are responding to the message of salvation from Him. And so here we have, we don't know how He came up with this knowledge. We don't know how He came to His understanding. But when, when the people of Nineveh heard, they believed in God. They responded with faith. Like Rahab, like Ruth like any other Gentile that we see in the Old Testament, Jethro, they believed. So verse 6, the word reached the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth and sat on the ashes, issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. Both man and beast and, uh, must be covered with sackcloth. And let man call on God earnestly. So when someone calls on God earnestly, we've already been set up in the book to expect God to respond to that, don't we? Because that's one of the central themes through the book of Jonah. When people call upon God in dependence, 
what does he do? He responds and he delivers. He saves. So that's exactly what they do. And he says in verse 9, and I think he's, he's speaking beyond himself here, but he says, who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. Turn back with me for just a second to the book of Joel. It's a book you've already, already talked about. You see, as, we, as you read through these minor prophets, what you're going to find is that there's lots of judgment. Lots of bad things going on in the book of the minor prophets here, in the book of the twelve. But every now and then, you'll hear kind of just this melody of salvation. Over and over again, this song is being sung about the compassion and the grace of God. And in Joel chapter 2, it's one of those places where we have... Like my Bible titles chapter 2, The Terrible Visitation. Well, that doesn't sound very exciting. But look what happens later on in the, in the chapter. Verse 11. The Lord utters his voice from before his army. Surely his camp is very great. For strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping, and mourning, rend your hearts and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God. Why? And here's the biblical principle. Because he is gracious and he's compassionate, he's slow to anger, he is abounding in loving kindness, and he is relenting of evil. And then this is what what he says. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. Go back to the book of Jonah. Isn't that what the, the king of Nineveh says? Repent, guys. Turn and put on sackcloth and ashes because he's not saying because God will, th- this will happen, but he says in verse 9, who knows? God may actually turn and relent. The exact same phrase. One in reference to Israel back in the book of Joel, here in reference to Gentiles in Nineveh. He withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. And so how does God respond? Verse 10, when God saw their deeds that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. He did not do it. So God, once again, proves himself to be a God who is compassionate and gracious and having loving kindness not just for his people Israel, but for the nations. We see it in chapter 1. It's proclaimed in the poem of chapter 2. And here we see it in chapter 3. Faith in Yahweh, faith in the Lord, he responds to it. And he saves and he delivers and he acknowledges it. And he, he shows himself to be compassionate and gracious And slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. Which is what Jonah didn't quite get. Because when you get to chapter 4, it tells the story of how Jonah responded. The book of Jonah kind of ends on a down note. Because, man, great. Salvation to the Gentiles. Here's the, the great commission of the Old Testament. If we go to the Gentiles and proclaim the goodness of God, look, they respond. They respond to that. But it doesn't. It shows, by way of using a negative example, of how Jonah and Israel tended to have a lack of concern 
for other nations, which was totally opposite to the promises that were made to Abraham. If you remember back to Genesis chapter 12, what kind of guides all of this is the promise of God to Abraham where he said, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. So there is this plan from the very beginning of founding Abraham and his descendants that God wanted to bless not just Abraham, not just his descendants, but those who would be blessed through him. There is a program in God's work for those who are outside Israel. And that is coming to bear in the book of Jonah, and it's countering this mentality of the prophet and assumed the mentality of the nation that I didn't really want that to happen, God. I I really wanted you to just annihilate them. I thought that's what you were going to do, but you didn't do it. But notice what he says in verse 2. He prays again. Again, there's that theme of prayer that works through the book. And he says, please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my country? We finally understand why he ran. He says, therefore, in order to forestall this, this meaning compassion of the Lord upon this pagan nation of Nineveh or nation of Assyria. He says, for I knew that you were what? Gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who relents concerning calamity. That's what we read over in the book of Joel. It's exactly what it was. Here Jonah gets it. He understands the character of God, but for some reason he didn't want it to happen. Where is his heart for other people? Where is his heart for the nations? Where is his heart to see God's compassion and his grace overflow to these people? He is so self-concerned, so self-interested that he fails to understand God's program of grace and compassion and mercy that should overflow those who have faith and trust in him. And so the book gives us a kind of a lesson at the end that that shows Jonah the futility of what he's thinking and the, the arrogance of what he's thinking. And he leaves, the book ends kind of with this rhetorical question where God says, well, you know, Jonah, should I not have compassion on these people either? Doesn't answer the question. The assumed answer is he should, and he has the prerogative to do that, but it leaves it unanswered. And the book stands here for all who come after, who read it to be confronted with this, this possibility that perhaps we as the readers take for granted and presume upon the grace that we find in Christ and fail to understand and perhaps even become arrogant about that faith and fail to proclaim that and openly share that with a lost and dying world, right? We fail to see that God's program for the nations is something that we as individuals and particularly as the church must adopt. And if we fail to do that, we do that to our peril. So what are the big ideas here? Let me just conclude with just a couple of thoughts. Let me give you three words. Prayer. God answered the prayer of the confession of the pagan sailors, just as he answered the prayers of Jonah when he's in the belly of the well. God answered the prayers of those in Nineveh who who repented And brought their repentance before God and believed and had faith. And so he answers prayer. He is a God who looks upon his people in their distress. Those who call upon him 
in distress, whatever form that might take, he continues to look down with compassion and grace upon those individuals. I think that's something that we fail in in a general way not to take from the book of Jonah, but it's constantly praying. The sailors pray. Jonah prays. The Ninevites pray. So prayer. Number two, nations. And I've hammered this home. You're like, okay, we get it. It's for the nations. But let's just kind of wrap this up around that, that topic. A central concern of the book is to show that God's mercy and salvation extends to all the nations, the Gentiles. Now, Jonah is slow to agree to this. He's slow to agree with God. He sees God's grace and, in some sense, his mercy limited to his own people. But here, the author of the book, probably Jonah here, doesn't let us get away without understanding that that's not true. If the central concern of the book is to show the grace of God that extends to the Gentile then it also shows a reluctant prophet, one who is slow to either come to agreement with God on the plant, on the point, or he has a problem, he fails to agree with God, wanting salvation to be limited to his own people, those who deserve salvation. Let me give you a third word, and we can wrap all this together. It's actually two words. Sovereign grace. Sovereign grace. You see, underwriting all of this story is the sovereignty of God. And we see that throughout the stories of the Old Testament. God grabbing the heart of individuals like he does with the Pharaoh in Egypt. Hardening the heart of individuals so that he might bring his people out. Here we see God using a disobedient prophet to bring salvation to the nations. God is sovereign over all of this. He is one who's the God of creation, hurling wind upon the sea, causing a fish to swallow a man, superintending all of that, causing the fish to vomit him up. He even commands a plant to grow over Jonah. God is sovereign. He is in control. He is in charge of his creation. However, that sovereignty is in many ways governed by his grace. Or it's revealed to us in acts of deliverance, in acts of salvation. And we saw that for the sailors, for Jonah himself, for the Ninevites. You see, God's plan to reach the city of Nineveh with this word of judgment could not be thwarted by the acts of a disobedient Jonah. Isn't it interesting how the Lord used Jonah's disobedience to bring salvation to the Gentiles, in this case, those in the exact opposite direction from Nineveh that should encourage us that you know what we're going to blow it we're we're really going to blow it with our neighbors we're going to blow it with our friends we are many times not going to portray a very godly lifestyle in front of our children who we passionately want to embrace the gospel but you know what our God superintends all of that in such a way that he can bring grace even when we blow it Even when we as Jonah don't accomplish God's will in the exact way that it's told to us, right? That's encouraging for me as a a parent and as one who, who ministers in a church. God's purpose, in other words, was accomplished despite the works of Jonah. Think of other stories in the Old Testament where that's exactly the point. Man cannot thwart God's plan to bring Grace and compassion 
to those he desires to have grace and compassion on. So Jonah failed to acknowledge this universal scope of God's sovereign grace. He seems to get it in chapter 2, but he seems not to apply it very, very well. Well, the irony of the story is that Jonah, blinded to the fact of God's grace, did not really seem to appreciate the sense of his own words that salvation is from the Lord. God had mercy on the Ninevites when they repented and believed. He rebuked Jonah for his hardness of heart. So let's ask ourselves, are there subtle ways that I envy or question the grace of God upon unbelievers? Do I have the same fervor to each person that I share the gospel with as I do for, let's say, my children? Do I ever resent the work of God in the lives of others out of pure jealousy? Does that sinking feeling ever come in when you see some, guy, some person really progressing in their faith and you compare yourself to them and you're like, why, why is that happening to them and why is it not happening to me? Are we skeptical, skeptical about the work of God in the lives of others? Because see, we, this becomes a very important warning to us. Are we, tempt, we are tempted to, to speak against Jonah for his petty selfishness and invade him in many ways. But we also must be aware that we who are reading this book are looking at a picture of our own frailties. And these kind of thoughts, these kind of understandings of God's grace and the gospel and so forth can in subtle ways creep into our understanding of, of, of our proclamation of the gospel, both as individuals and especially as a church. Could it be that we need to be reminded tonight that here in Jonah, kind of this great commission of the Old Testament, do we need to be encouraged and charged to once again live up to this idea that we as believers and as a church need to proclaim the gospel to the nations. Right? May God do that in our hearts. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that you will use the, the words of this book to conform our mind and our hearts to to your will, your desire to bring salvation in all your sovereignty and all your compassion to bring salvation to the nations. We pray that you will find us as, as church and as individuals being faithful in that task to obey you in that area. And we'll trust you for it and rely upon the grace that, that only you can provide because salvation is from the Lord. It's not from us. And we acknowledge that and confess that to you tonight. In Christ's name, amen.